Chapter 2 The Funeral Despite that awkward conversation with Wallace about having spoken to Marlene Brown's family, two days later I found myself heading south on I-95. I'm not sure why. Maybe it was morbid curiosity. Maybe voyeurism. Guilt. I had the melancholy sense of making a trip back to my grandfather's village in Ireland. At the cemetery, I waded through patches of snow in shoes I was ruining. I eventually came upon a small gathering in the middle of an endless parade of headstones, all pointing up out of the ground at imperfect angles, resembling long rows of crooked teeth in the mouth of a shark lying dead on a dock. I stayed on the perimeter, and a priest was talking, and then a line formed, and they threw shovelfuls of dirt down on the coffin that contained Marlene Brown. All the men wore black overcoats. Does every man but me own a black overcoat? I hadn't attended a funeral since my father's almost twenty years earlier. I remembered Marlene being a large woman, obese even. That had probably inflamed her diabetes and made things a lot harder. I never got close enough to get a look at the coffin. It's probably big, I thought. I wondered if they charge more, if they need extra wood. The priest made a remark about how she had gotten a kidney transplant and how it had enabled her to spend a few more precious months with Joe and her eight grandchildren. I smiled inwardly, warmed by my own secret beneficence. Marlene's priest was leading them through the valley of the shadow of death. People huddled around her fresh grave in small groups and held each other's glove-covered hands. There was no wind, but it was cold. We could all see our breath that day in Pennsylvania. White puffs of vapor constantly dissipated in the air in front of our faces as we stood in the graveyard. She had received a South African kidney. It was standard issue from a poor black woman who lived in a tin shanty home. The Browns had paid 150 k The South African probably got about 1500 No one ever made follow-up calls to the sellers. There was a good chance that the South African got no aftercare, She might have gotten an infection or become unable to work. In his eulogy, the priest mentioned that Marlene's husband had gotten a second mortgage to pay for her operation. It didn't fully cover it, but neighbors and fellow parishioners donated enough to make up the difference. I didn't know that. I didn't talk too much to Wallace's buyers. From what Wallace had said, the guy didn't really try to negotiate. He just paid us. It wasn't the new knowledge of how the Browns had funded their purchase that struck me but rather the fact that I had been completely unaware of it. Traded his home for a few more months with his beloved wife, the priest said, while the cold, wet snow started to seep through the seams where the soles of my shoes met the soft Italian leather. I didn't know a thing about the Browns prior to that funeral. They belonged to Wallace. I had no idea about what they had gone through to buy my extraordinarily overpriced product that had, apparently, only extended her life for another few months. I realized then that I knew so little about any of them. I had stopped asking, years ago. It caught me off guard. Standing there in the snow, I thought about them all and started to feel sick. I thought about the sellers in South Africa and Asia and South America, poor people living wretched lives all further cut off at the knees by the lies spewed by a network of finders that I had built and managed for years. I thought about all of our American and European clients, who we had charged triple the fair price. They all went on to lead Marlene Brown-like lives, in varying degrees, 
although most did live much longer. Her husband, Joe, was crying, constantly wiping at his nose and his eyes with the fingers of a black leather glove. Then I found that I was crying, silently. It was not for Marlene, it was for me. I was crying for the life I had lost, because I realized clearly that day that I had not saved a soul, but instead I had played a part in destroying all of us. The magnitude of that loss was pushing down on my shoulders, sinking me deeper into the soft snow, pushing me down into the magma in the core of the earth. There is one thing that all priests and atheists have in common. They all hope the priests are right. But standing in the remnants of snow on the frozen grass in New Hope, I certainly did not believe that priest when he said that Marlene Brown was in a place called Heaven.